One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 238th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Michael Grove and Emilio Torres. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan. And today we have Amanda Rowe on the podcast. She is a director. She's directed a ton of awesome shows like The 100. She's an EP on the Nancy Drew series for The CW. She is just very awesome and has like a, such a cool story. And I think Matt calls them teachable moments, you know, those stories that our listeners can listen to and say like, oh, I should do that. She has so many of those. And I don't know, I just, I, we didn't really know her at all. We actually got introduced to her by a listener of ours named Roscoe Guerrero. Who hey, was, thanks, Roscoe. Yeah. He's like, oh, you guys should talk to Amanda Rose. She's kind of like perfect for your podcast. And, you know, we do get kind of a lot of emails like that. <laughs> And so usually we're just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But we checked out Amanda and we're like, oh, wow, she is kind of quite amazing. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, the you'll you'll hear the story, but the fish breathing story is kind of my favorite story <laughs> she told us. Ooh. And it just, uh, it just kind a of... A mystery. Yeah. Just kind of reminds you how to think outside of the box and inside of the box at the same time. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm really excited for people to hear this interview because she has a cool story and she started... Young, which I'm not saying is like a good thing, but I feel like she kind of, she started at a time when she wasn't like afraid of things. And no matter what age you are, hopefully you can adopt that attitude too of just like, just shooting it. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, she's also, it's important to mention, she, I think is a self-described genre director. And so the thing that I love the most about horror and sci-fi and that kind of like action even that those worlds is that there is like an arts and crafts to it of like you know let's get some corn syrup and let's get some food coloring and we're going to make a movie and she definitely takes that perspective and amps it up and like does a ton of really cool in-camera effects and really carves a niche for herself early on in her career really breaks out by employing a just shoot a mentality with the ingenuity of that sort of arts and crafts style approach. And it's really great, really inspiring. And um, she's kicking so much butt now, but still manages to bring that ethos into her work even to this day. Yeah. Have you seen The Witch, that movie? Robert Eggers movie? Sure, yes, yeah. I think he was like kind of famously was making all his own props and just very involved tactilely in the in creating the period. He was a production designer, yeah. He spent like two years making all of the props and costumes and stuff with tools that were period <laughs> right. appropriate. Yeah. Absolutely. There's no chainsaw 
involved in building that log cabin. That's not insane or anything. But even like Darren Aronofsky, <laughs> I don't know if you ever read his journal of while he was making Pi the movie. He was literally, while he was writing the movie, collecting pieces of computers from the junkyard in order to build this giant room that's just filled, you know, floor to ceiling with computers. You mean Euclid, which is the name of the computer. Oh, yes, to build Euclid. Yes, good, <laughs> good reach. Thanks, man. But I've seen that movie too many times. <laughs> there is something, like you're saying, really cool. And even if it's not genre, but just if you can start interacting with the elements from your movie, even before you're done with the script, it could be a fun way to work on your movie without actually having to sit with final draft open. And it informs your process, right? Like that, it, it, there's a feedback loop there of like you see what you can put in front of the lens and that inspires something else that you maybe want to write or change or augment in some way. Yeah, for sure. Before we talk to Amanda, I was going to ask you very quickly because we have a long interview with Amanda. What have you been working on lately? Yeah, I am on this job. I'm uh, down in San Diego. So I, I left my apartment for the first time in a long time yeah, um, Bro Central. Yeah, Brotopia, I like to call it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, San Diego. For the record, is, I grew uh, up pretty close to San Diego, so yeah, I'm, yeah, allowed yeah, sure. to, I'm allowed to make fun of them a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you you grew up, uh, you're bro, bro adjacent, basically. But yeah, no, it's been really uh, interesting and fun. It's a lot of local crew, which is always nice. I keep joking with them that I'm the new kid. But yeah, it's been really fun and it's nice to just get out there and, and collaborate with people again. I'm constantly reminded of how much I love and miss my job. Yeah, that's fun. It's it's definitely seeming this week, especially, uh, and today we're recording this on October 19th. Work has picked up. I have three treatments due this week. I have quite a few editing jobs. I'm delivering two things and I... Uh, am just having a busier week than I'm used to. And I kind of got used to this relaxing quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I think um, I agree. I think work is back. We'll see how long it lasts. I'm curious because I think that this tends to be the time when people start amping up for your Christmas, Black Friday sort of campaigns. This is like and spending down those budgets, right? Like we always talk about this is our busy season. And I have definitely been hit up for more work recently than the last six months combined by far. And so, yeah, I hope that we can ride it out for sure. I think it's nice to just on a, on a mental level, just know that there is work to be had out there, even if you're not winning all of those jobs. Yeah. Do you think it's a very, a very hypothetical question, but do you think that there's any connection to the state of work for us and the election, like people trying to finish things before a potential regime change or civil war erupts in the streets? I don't think that that is, I, I think that advertising, right? Cause really that's what we're talking about. Like our scripted projects and our, our, our passion projects and all that stuff is, is a, is a different ball game. But I think that in the world of advertising, I think that there is, it, it really is drastically affected by the market basically. And so of course, as things change geopolitically, that affects you know, buyer confidence, you know, in the stock market and all of that stuff. And so certainly I think that, you know, budgets are already set. People already need to be making money where we're, we tend to make advertising for fortune 500 companies, you know, like these are big, big brands. And so I don't think that they're subject to the whims of 
the market in quite the same way, or rather at least their budgets have already been set well before things started to go crazy. But don't you feel like you're doing Halloween themed spots? So I think because it's Halloween is coming up, it's kind of aimed for that time and it works. But the stuff I'm pitching on isn't really about any specific time. And there is this fear of being tone deaf in this time. There are people dying. There is a pandemic. There is something. There is an election. There are people. There's holiday. There's just all these things going on in the world. And if you just make a commercial of someone like walking to a coffee shop and you don't acknowledge that anything crazy is happening in the world, is there some responsibility? I mean, you know, obviously there was like uh, Kylie Jenner with a Pepsi at a protest, you know, commercial that was very tone deaf. And I do think that there is some fear, even just like when it comes to casting and when it comes to every element, I think can, especially with a Fortune 500 company, might be a little bit more under the microscope than usual in a quite angst-filled society. I do wonder if there's just some more sensitivity to what we're making and how we're advertising and all that stuff. Well, I think that as comedy directors, part of the reason why we haven't been working is because no one is <laughs> shortlisting us for the like, hey, we know times are hard right. kind of spots. You know, like there's no, we're not up for the Walmart spot where like we bring an air filter home to grandma or something, right? Oh yeah, I pitched on that. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, you, did you have grandma fart at the end? <laughs> that, that would have been good. Um, no. <laughs> but anyway, so so I think that the fact that people are even talking to us, I think, is a indication that the sentiment has shifted. I think comedy, you know, I think is important in um, in times of woe. But I think that agencies are thoughtful about making sure that they don't seem distasteful in some way. Yeah, like in a weird way. And I am just so obsessed with the tweets, you know, so I, I might not be the average person. But in a weird way, I feel that if Joe Biden wins and politics become quote unquote boring again, that it releases us to kind of just say whatever we want and comedy kind of comes back and things loosen up in a way that if Trump wins, especially where we live in California, people will not want to see a fart joke, you know, not for yeah. not for a little while. I think they'll be recovering for a month or four years or something. Before we talk to Amanda, I'd love to tell everyone about our Patreon, which we've gotten, you know, some awesome new patrons recently. Yeah, Emilio and Michael. Thanks, guys. Yeah, quite a few are getting hats. We actually have to re-up our hat order because we're out of hats again. Second time. Flying off the shelves. Things must be getting shot on sets because people must be wearing these hats that we're sending them on sets. And, you know... People probably look at them and respect them a lot because they're wearing this hat because they know what's up. So if you want to be respected, uh, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash justshootitpod. It is a place you can give us a dollar or two or four or ten if you feel like the podcast has given you anything, a helpful hint. Maybe you just landed that job and you're making a few thousand dollars and you feel like you want to thank us in some way. for giving you some bad ideas then check it out patreon.com slash just shoot it pod if you donate ten dollars even one month then we will send you a free just shoot it podcast hat 
And the money pays our editors, Sarah, and our social media people and everyone and our server fees. So we appreciate it. And if not, don't worry. Just keep listening to the podcast. We still like you. Hey, folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take, and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check them out. Let us know how it goes. In the film timeline that we're used to of people spending hundreds of years trying to get their first paid gig, you've had a pretty meteoric rise, right? You're like a co-EP on a TV show. Now you just graduated film school nine years ago which is recent in Hollywood time. How did you do it? I fell ass backwards into it. Um, I, I can only attribute it all to the fact that I have just been making shit since I was a kid. And the short film that got me my first job in television was one of probably two dozen little short films I made that year. I made it for 50 bucks in an afternoon. It was three minutes long. And for whatever reason, people really loved it. And I mean, my philosophy at the time and to this day still is just like throw enough shit at the wall, like something will stick. You know, you're going to make mistakes along the way, but all of those mistakes are lessons and you become a better filmmaker for doing it. Can you tell us about that short? Yeah, we got to dig in on the short for sure. Like, what's a $50 short that gets you a TV gig? I would, I'm going to write this down. Well, it had a good twist. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to, like, I don't honestly know why this one of all of the little shorts I'd made uh, it turned into what I did. I mean, the, the actual logistics of what happened were that little short film ended up in a bunch of film festivals all over the world. Can you just give us the log line? Oh, mitten. I can't. It's like three minutes. It's a guy is walking through the woods and he finds a mitten covered in blood and then something happens like in the end. I like, it. like I can't like it, it kind of ruins it. If I is tell it you, it's a three minute short. Come on. You can't ruin it on a podcast. We're talking about you've done all this TV. You directed the 100 for crying out loud. You can't tell us. You can't spoil a three minute short. So uh, it's you just can not, say no, it's by not, way. Sorry, it's just I not going to be as good if I tell you what the ending is. The whole the, the, the whole thing is that it's a you just see a guy walking through the woods. You don't know. He finds a mitten and it's covered in blood and he seems really fascinated with it and seems to have some sort of weird like, you know, like he's afraid because there's a little child's mitten covered in blood and I'll just ruin it, whatever. At the end of the film, he walks towards this big tree and there's a big pile of leaves and he starts digging through the leaves 
and a human hand is there. And then he puts the mitten on and he the goes... The hand that matches the glove. And then he yeah. goes, I found your mitten, sweetheart. And, and that's it. <laughs> oh. That's, that's Ooh, yeah. Creepy. That's good. <laughs> that's so good. Hold, so I want to keep digging in though. So when you say a bunch of film festivals... Are we talking the big fancy ones we've all heard of or like a lot of great regional ones? What was the biggest festival you played? The one that got me my job in TV was the After Dark Festival in Toronto. Although I was in like, because I was like a little three minute short film, here's advice to young filmmakers out there. Make one to five minute short films because festivals are just looking into fill in slots and make that time work. And my film was three minutes long. So in a lot of horror festivals all over the world, a lot of film festivals, they were like, perfect. This is good. It'll fit right in there. And so I ended up... Or you can even play it before a feature, right? Absolutely. I mean, they're just looking for stuff to fill in that time slot. Like, it's it's a lot easier. And another really fucking good piece of advice. Sorry, I'm swearing already. A, a good piece of advice. You're a genre director. You can swear, you know. <laughs> yeah. Hell yes. Um, if you make a little tiny short film that's one to five minutes long, email the festival directors directly and say, look, I can't really afford the admission fee. Can you watch? Can, can like, is there anything you can do? Chances are they'll watch your three minute film. And if it's good. They'll say, yeah, no problem, fine. You can be a part of it. That's great advice we haven't heard on the show before. Yeah, like, no one ever talks about waivers. That's you can literally, point. yeah, say, it will take you longer to respond to me than to watch this film, right? Absolutely, so. and that's how I got, I mean, uh, Mitten, the name of the film is Mitten, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, which was actually, I, it was originally a contest submission because the ABCs of Death, I don't know if you guys know those films, the horror anthology films, every time they did a, uh, a movie, they would release a letter to the public and be like, okay, it's the letter C, and you have to come up with something. So the letter was M, and it was just like, I was constantly entering these contests, I was constantly just because it was it gave me limitations it gave me rules to work within that was fun and I love doing it and like I said my philosophy has always been throw enough shit against the wall something will be good eventually I love that so much tell us uh, in terms of scope and size right you're throwing a lot of spaghetti against the wall do you have a crew is it like you and your film school pals is it like you alone in the woods what sort of is it an iPhone? Does DSLR, your uncle own an Alexa? Alexa. Well, it depends. Paint the picture. It, it depends on the project. It always depends on the project. Depends on the people I'm talking to at the time. Um, I a thousand percent believe you can shoot something beautiful on an iPhone. I think you can shoot something on like a high eight tape and make it amazing. Just if your idea and your intention is great. Um, Mitten I made with four people. It was like, I'm not kidding. It was literally an afternoon. It did not seem like a big deal, but it ended up really like significantly changing my life. Wait, but did you have to dig a giant hole under this tree in order to get the person's arm to be sticking? No, what we did, I literally, it was fall. So we like piled a bunch of of leaves and I had, I had, no, I was in Toronto. It was right. fall in Toronto. I'm saying we don't have that here. But yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I lived in California for a while, and I resent that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we, like, did a pile. We just, like, built a big pile of leaves and then had a wonderful volunteer put her hand through the leaves and hold it very still while she was getting eaten alive by, you know, late summer mosquitoes. But it was, yeah, it was very... Very, very small, very just sort of like, well, I'm going to do this thing. I don't know, whatever. It'll be fun using the resources I have. I uh, I mean, I grew up making movies when I was 10. I started like just working with what I had. And even as a television director now working on shows where like I've got $11 million, 
I still have that sort of backyard filmmaking mentality and uh, it's extraordinarily useful. So I want to learn more about how you take that mentality with you into television. But before we get into that, I have a a couple tiny more questions about Mitten and what happened afterwards. So so Mitten, you you know, you don't have big auspices for it. You make it on a lark. It turns out it's good, right? And it's like playing a lot of places. What I want to know is after it starts building steam, right? What And you said it changed your life. How did people reach out to you? How did they, did they see it through the film festival? Tell us literally, did you get a phone call? Was it an email and from whom? My guess is somebody called you and they're like, we've got a movie, an M movie. <laughs> you, we're looking for an M director. Yeah. No, it's it's actually like, it's it's actually pretty cool. The um, So Netflix at the time was doing their very first original series. They were which, called Netflix back then. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was uh, called Hemlock Grove. It was a horror series produced by Eli Roth. It, this was Netflix's first foray into television. Yeah, it's like it's like House of Cards hadn't come out yet even. Yeah, yeah it was like this really, really early. Way back. Right. It was like yeah, 2012. Yeah. This is like way, way back. Yeah. And uh, the uh, producer-director of that series, uh, David Strayton, saw my film and saw that I had made it for 50 bucks. And at the Where time... Where did he see your film? Like at a festival? After Dark Film Festival. Okay. And that's that's the Lionsgate one, right? Or it used to be connected to them, no? I have no idea. After Dark, it's Toronto After Dark. All I know is it's a Toronto horror festival that I am loyal to every year since I was like 16. But so he saw my film and then he read my blurb where it said I made it for 50 bucks in an afternoon. And he had at the time been trying to convince Netflix that he needed one director to do all of these nightmares because in season two of Hemlock Grove, uh, there were every single episode had a nightmare. And at the end of the season, you find out that all these nightmares are coming from a singular source. And he didn't want a bunch of guest directors coming in and putting their spin on these nightmares. He wanted one director to do all the nightmares. And he was trying that to would convince... be intercut into each episode. Exactly. And he was trying to convince Netflix to hire a unit for that. And they were like, nah, bro, you're like super insane. That's crazy expensive. We can't do that. And then he saw what I did for 50 bucks. And I still to this day don't know why he had such blind faith in me. But he was like, this girl, she can do it. She can make something cool for 50 bucks. And I was invited into uh, a room full of producers. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I was wearing overalls, which is hilarious. I looked, I looked very, like when I was, I was think I was 22 years old or 23 years old. Like I looked very, very young. I probably looked 15. And they were like, who the hell is this child? Like what, what, what is happening? And they gave me a page of script and they gave me a camera and they basically were like, all right, make us a nightmare. And so I did. And I made it in my backyard. So they wrote they wrote something for you. No, it was already written. It was already the like, this is the nightmare. This is what's going to happen. And, they were, and this is the thing. They're all these sort of supposed to be these abstracted dreamlike images. But essentially, I because I had already been doing this for so long by myself, I knew about I had a bunch of like tricks, you know, like passing a piece of like broken glass in front of the lens or, you know, like I I already like my brain worked that way. And a perfect example of it is there was one line in the script that was uh, a fish is gasping for air at the edge of a a dry riverbed. And uh, I got that shot and 
the producer director, like, so, so basically after I submitted it, like Eli Roth, everyone was like, this is great. We need more of this. And like that day, Wait, I, how do you, how do you get a fish to gasp for air? I literally bought a fish at the grocery store and added like fishing line to its mouth and used Wait, it like a, a dead puppet. fish. A dead fish. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Like a grocery. It was it cost me like $6 and I just like used it like a puppet. And it was so funny because the, the producer director was just like, oh, God, how did you do it? Like, we've been dealing with this shop for so long. Like, Peter was going to get involved. And, like, I was like, dude, like, I just bought a grocery store fish. And it's because their minds No animals don't... were harmed. No, no animals. <laughs> They're already Not dead. by me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not by me. I didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, like, it was just this, you know, because they're so used to the the bureaucracy and the rules and, and having to spend this much money, the idea of going to the grocery store and using a piece of fishing line on an already dead fish just never occurred to them. So that, the fact- That is legitimately crazy. That's yeah. bonkers. And I think it's yeah. respectful that you used fishing line instead of any other sort of wire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we call, nice we call it monofilament in the biz sure. for some right, reason right. Yeah, to yeah. make <laughs> it sound fancy. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so a producer doesn't like strike, like we don't need fishing line, get rid of that. Wait, right. so just in this story, so you don't have like a production designer, an art person, or anything that you lean on. I you had just... so I had a crew of probably nine people, um, and I I really got to do like film school filmmaking on this set. Like I just got to be creative. We got to like experiment with, like, dude, like I so I did like these nightmares for Hemlock Grove, and then after that, I got hired to do like the murder visions for Minority Report. So I was in this like really weird niche of like this girl knows how to create. <laughs> bizarre imagery for nothing and like we just experimented like we did like here like one really cool shot that i love to talk about is we uh the dream was a guy was gonna fall off a bridge and drown right so how do we visually how do we how do we express that visually we put a uh basically a piece of plastic or a piece of glass in front of the lens and poured a water bottle all over the front of it, shot it at, you know, 200 frames a second and had a guy silhouetted against a white psych jumping off of a trampoline and then like falling. And then as the water fell, his silhouette just turned into this sort of fluid, watery thing. And it was just this sort of like, I don't know what that'll look like. Let's try it. And I got to do so much of that on the show and so much of that on Minority Report. Like I learned so many cool, easy, interesting tricks in terms Wait, did of you ever shoot stuff that you're like nah that, that doesn't look like anything interesting oh absolutely all the time but that's the i mean that's why you just do like i said just do everything so they <laughs> so they kind of let you play i mean i'm assuming now when you're doing a show like the 100 or nancy drew you don't get to try out like 10 different things right no, I don't get to try out 10 different things, but I definitely do try things. I mean, if anything, like television for me is a amazing playground where I get to experiment and I get to use the toys and you have to be smart about the choices you make. You know, I'm not I'm not going to go do something that's especially because it's not my money in it. It's not my show. Um, I have to be uh, a little bit careful about the risks I take, but it's calculated risks. Well, and I imagine if you had a crazy idea, you could maybe do the lo-fi prototype on the weekend or whatever, just to see if it would work before you wanted to prove it to someone or something, right? For sure. We test stuff and like, but I mean, honestly, just like trusting your gut, like when you think like, you know what, this might work, like it usually does. Going back to the mode where you're in this kind of nightmare creation sort of world, 
are you doing much digitally or in post or is it all kind of these in-camera tricks that you're experimenting with? Everything I did on Hemlock Grove and Minority Report was in-camera. Mm-hmm. We did everything so, in camera. Yeah, that's and pretty I'm cool. Still, and right. I still love in camera stuff. Like I'm, I there's something I love magic. Like I'm, I, I'm super. I want to be a member that's of the a Magic great Castle. Card game. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also super into. I'm super into Magic Gathering. I play a lot <laughs> of Magic Gathering. Well, yeah. insult <laughs> failed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great game. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm into like actual like I mean the first. A guy to do special effects ever was George Melies. That was like what 1904. He was a magician. Right. There's yeah. no difference between special effects and being a magician. And I love that stuff. Well, I magic love... is real is the difference. But yeah. <laughs> I just I think that the mad like movie magic is when when the person in the audience doesn't know how it was done. Do you find that the practical applications rather than digital make them feel different in some way i think that i i mean i'm a i can talk all day about vfx and i love vfx um vfx is a color on your palette it's not the end all be all like it it's it sort of in the early you know in the early 2000s it sort of turned into this thing we all saw these really depressing images of george lucas against green screens versus him against all of his puppets and stuff and it was like really sad but i uh i actually my thesis film in film school was an homage to practical effects because I, when I was in film school, the red one came out, Avatar came out and I, I felt like the film that I had learned to love had been sort of disintegrating. And, um, my film teacher, my film school teacher said to me, Amanda, you're, you're a genre director. If you're in genre, you have to move with the way the industry is going. And he introduced me to uh, Steve Spaz Williams, who invented VFX. He did the VFX for Jurassic Park, Terminator, The Abyss, all that shit. And I got to sit down and have dinner with this guy. And he really like explained to me how when he did these films, he did them by himself. Like he didn't have a program filling in the blanks. He didn't have the zeros and ones being filled in. He had to build these elements from clay. Like the, I mean, I could talk for hours about the shit he told me, but you should probably just talk to him. But he, he essentially taught me that, and, and he said, I have faith that the film industry will understand that VFX isn't it. It's a part of it. It's just like George Melies compositing. It's no different than we did in 1904. It's the same philosophy, except instead of using scissors and tape, we're using a computer program. And it's just, it's like a VFX shot does not work unless you have interactive lighting, interactive action, all that kind of stuff. Like it's just a part of it. It's not the end all be all, but it's an amazing tool that keeps evolving, that is making television and film like, so exciting and awesome and we're just getting more tools as we go yeah i mean every any vfx person you ever meet will tell you that like the practical the more you can do in camera the better so do you join the dga and stuff when you're doing these nightmare videos so i didn't join the dga i joined the dgc so the director's guild of canada which is it's, it exists it's a thing never even thought of that i know we exist i'm i'm dga now as well as dgc um, at the time I was, like I said, I was like super young, fell ass backwards into it, tons and tons of luck on my side. And I literally like, I got the job and they were like, 
I needed to be a member of the union, so I called up the DGC, and they're like, oh, I was like, I'm on this show called Hemlock Grove, and they're like, all right, here's your membership, whereas, like, you know, most of the time, you got to, like, build up a, a certain amount of hours and get sponsors and all that kind of stuff. I didn't have to do that, um, but I did have to, you know, the first time I was ever on a television set, I was directing, and that was a a real learning curve and I wasn't and I wasn't just and, I, and I'll say like I wasn't just directing nightmare units which were like my very comfortable film school nine people I was also directing like full-on second units where on a tv show where I had a crew of a hundred people and like I, I I vividly remember my first time on set I was directing it was like a news piece it was supposed to be playing on a tv in the background of an episode, but I had like three picture cars, like 30 background, I had a crane. I, I remember someone coming up to me and asking me something and I was like, this isn't my first rodeo, but it was like very much my first rodeo. Like I had no idea what I was doing. Fake it till you make it, it's real. Yeah, I, I wanna make sure that we're tracking correctly. So you do Hemlock Grove and then you do Minority Report. The TV show, so then the second you, you were doing was relatively soon thereafter or like was there a gap of time in between? How did that go? Oh, there was a major gap. I did season two and three of Hemlock Grove. And then... Uh, and is that like your full-time job? Like that's all you're doing is Hemlock Grove? That was my full-time... Yeah, because it was every single episode. So it was like a kind of cool, unique situation where like they had a full-time second unit, special unit, where that was, yeah, that was my job. I did Hemlock. And this is like 2012, right? Yeah. So 2012, that's way pre-Me Too and all that stuff. Do you feel like as a female director, like that was... A challenge for you like that people had low expectations or oh, anything everybody thought I was sleeping with somebody it was funny because it, it like everyone asked me this question but I was like I was so out of my element that I didn't even allow myself to notice I had people on the set who were so outwardly awful to me and only in retrospect, when people told me afterwards, did I realize that that's what I had gone through. But I had just been so fixated on doing a good job that, like, I didn't notice and I didn't care. But I assume you also must have been, like, really nice to people, right? Because I think I, I think that you see this happen a lot where, like, an independent filmmaker that's used to small crews is, like, really amazing at their job. And then they get this opportunity to work with the nine person and that million dollar budget or the hundred person crew, you know, the eleven million dollar budget and they are having trouble because people aren't letting them do what they're used to doing. And so to, to succeed, you have to get along with people, it seems like, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think, and I still am like that. I'm, I'm still very, very nice. I mean, I, I mean, filmmaking is a, it's a team thing. You know, if I wanted to just do it myself, I'd paint a picture or write a book. Like, this is a team-based medium. I love my crew. I love having all their perspectives and I need to make them feel comfortable enough with me to be able to say, hey man, it wouldn't be cool if we did this. And I need to be, and I need them to not be offended when I say no. So that the next time they come up with an idea, they can say, they can give it to me and not feel afraid of it. I mean, my, I, I am definitely very kind on set and nice on set. I mean, the other benefit of that is like when I'm not nice, you know you fucked up. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah, like, whoa, yeah, yeah. like Amanda's yeah, mad. You, that must you like, mean you it, must have really fucked yeah, up. Yeah, you know? yeah, for sure. Yeah, or just we don't have time to try, you know, your crazy yeah. idea. 
Sometimes we don't have time. I'll say thank you. That's a great idea. But no, we're not going to do that. But yes, I, I was and I am. I've always been uh, a very nice person. I mean, I'm Canadian as well, which, you know, <laughs> adds, adds to it's it. built in. Yeah. It's right. definitely built in. But on Hemlock Grove, and I'm, I'm fine saying this, like Hemlock Grove was like a very like masculine environment. It was a very masculine set. And I very much stood out like a sore thumb. Like I, uh, everyone was like, what is she doing here? But I mean, we were making great things and I had certain allies on the set that, you know, were looking out for me and, and making sure that my stuff was, that, that I was being heard. And I have to thank those people as well for all of that. But I just didn't let it affect me. Did you have any practical experiences where like someone did something that like helped you help bolster your voice in some way you know like what you said that you had a, a handful of allies who really made sure that you were heard are there were there specific things or tactics that they used that you maybe use now when you need to like amplify someone else's voice or anything like that is there any like practical sort of uh, technique to it yeah um it's a great question i was working on one show where i was i had one shot in mind that i was trying to do and it was a sort of a practical special effects shot i had one way i wanted to shoot it and the dp sort of kept talking being like oh why don't we do it like this and why don't we do it like this and it was it kind of confused me because you know he's the dp he's been working for this long am i thinking the wrong thing like i don't know like that's that's something that like even still i have to battle with is like does this person know more than me like maybe i should be listening to them but one of the the art pas literally came up and just said like wait wait why don't you just listen to amanda for a second and then everyone took pause and then i was able to explain exactly what i wanted to do and then it was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And then we did it and it was great. And what that was for me was like, when I have an idea in the beginning and I'm confident about how it works, hold on to that idea. Cause you're gonna get a million voices coming at with how they can do it, how they think it should happen. One thing that you forget constantly as a director is nobody is inside of your head. Nobody is in your head. You sometimes you come up with a scene. You're like, well, obviously that's how it's shot. You know, obviously sure. they see it. Why like this, bother but explaining? It's not. Because it should be apparent to everyone, right? Exactly. Yeah. But that's that's not the case. Everybody has their own unique mind, which is a, which is why we all work together. All their unique minds come together to make a beautiful product in the end. But ultimately, as the director, like if you believe in something, initially you're probably right stick with it and don't like letting never in my career has anybody has has someone said something that has made me doubt myself that has made me change my mind that I haven't regretted afterwards I always regret not listening to my instincts yeah I am exactly the same way and I you know we've been all of us have been doing this you know between 10 and 20 years and I'm, I'm still on set sometimes where like the DP will be like why don't we just shoot it from here? It'll be way easier. It'll be better. It looks better. And you're like, yeah, it does look better. And that would be easier. And then you're like, but wait, but my whole point of this shot is to see these two things together. And now you're trying to change everything. And it's also as the cut into this last, yeah. And it's, you do find yourself sometimes fighting for yourself. We actually, we just talked to a directing duo yesterday, a couple that directs together. And that was one of the advantages they have is they can back each other up and say, wait, but that wasn't, our plan and this is why because it's really easy especially when you're younger and newer to get derailed by 
the DP that's shot 30 years of TV. Yeah. You know? and what, what's especially hard about it is that also it's not like you're always right, right? Your instincts are one thing, right? But then sometimes someone will bring up, you know, a, a different solution and your instincts will tell you, oh, that's what I should do. That's right. And that feels very similar to the thing that you're describing, Amanda, where someone has undermined your instincts and you're questioning it, right? Like there's a difference between following your gut when there's a a new option that seems great versus getting under your skin. And they feel so similar that it can be really hard and and it complicates things. They feel similar, but I I ultimately, I think it's the same thing. It's, It's the same thing as if somebody comes up to you with an idea... And your gut tells you that's good. That's good. Go for Go it. Go with your yeah. gut. Yeah. You know, and and like that's what I was saying is like working in film. You want to hear everyone's ideas. You want to hear what hair thinks. You want to hear what everyone thinks because they're all looking at the monitor uh, with a completely hair is different. Always talking to me about how to light my shots. Damn hey, it, hair. I had like I had a really cool experience. Uh, hair. The reason I said hair actually specifically is because it kind of taught me a lesson. Um, I was doing Shadow Hunters, and um, Nancy Warren is the head of makeup and hair on that show and she i had this one scene with this guy he's like particularly he's like hanging from chains and he's looking like particularly angry she came up to me and she was like should we like spike his hair up you know and i was like well i don't know what didn't it look like this the last scene like why would we spike his hair up and she was like well when i did wolverine's hair i was like oh shit okay when i did wolverine's hair you whenever really he was, liked it spiky <laughs> well whenever he was angry she pointed all of his hair towards the front so all of those lines from the eyebrows you know all of that stuff going down that all it it turned to a point and it just became a little extra little nugget that we as the audience are subconsciously absorbing and i like that to me was like that moment to me was like every single person on this set has a perspective that is valuable to telling that story also you know uh, special effects makeup oftentimes looks best from a certain angle right in the same way that like stunts would be like ah, if you really if you take a step to your left with the camera it'll sell the punch better like all of that stuff speaks together for sure all of it does i mean it's a it is a collaborative medium and you should be in film because you want that well so okay so you didn't have lock grove they needed a minority report and then you jumped into shadow hunters and siren and cloak and dagger and all these kind of high budget big set piece tv shows I'm curious, you know, you're one person. How much control do you have over, like, you know, there's a scary guy in chains, like like the wardrobe, the chains, you know, like what everything looks like, the locations. Like when you're working on such a big TV show with so many moving parts, how much is the director saying like, oh, I think the chains should look like this and I think the wardrobe should look like this? Or how much of it is, like, I guess, what are you focusing on as a TV director on these kind of big set piece shows that you have to shoot in probably eight days or something. Yeah, usually eight days. It's always different. It's always like show to show. For me, the most important thing always is the story and the characters. Like what is what is the story that I'm telling? Every show has rules. Even if those rules aren't written out or explained, you just sort of understand them via watching the show or just how the crew acts. Uh, what the network or the studio expects. There are shows that, you know... Like, what do you mean by the crew, how the crew acts? Like when, like if they're kind of 
turned off by an idea of yours? Well, I very excited about it. Well, no, I like I, for example, um, I don't have any control over the lighting. I can say something like I want it to be dark and moody or I would like this to be bluer or, or, you know, I'd like it to be colder versus warmer. I would like to, to change. You can say silhouette versus. Yeah. But like there's, but if the show has a specific lighting style that I think is ugly, like I can't tell the DP Mm. we're changing it. Which show is that? Which show is that? um, What? Light as a feather? (laughs) I'm not telling you anything. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But like, but that's the thing. Like I have to, the way I always describe it, for at least with television is uh it's a coloring book they've given me the lines and i can use whatever colors i want at whatever density i want but i have to stay within those lines and as a director on in television especially because i did not like intend to be a television director i you know i write i direct i still have all the stuff that like i i have a voice as a filmmaker it's about fitting within that coloring book and then doing it the way that you can do it within those lines. I think that because I've directed television for so long since, uh, you know, literally like straight out of film school into TV, I've kind of learned how to embrace the limitations and love them and kind of, I'm a little bit addicted to them. Like I like when you like COVID, like I'm running a TV show during a pandemic and I weirdly like love it. Cause I'm like, all right, we can only shoot like this way once. We only get two takes. Yeah. Like all the actors have to be six feet apart. Like I, but it's it's blow I, each other kisses. No mouth to mouth kisses. It's like a boss level in a video game. You know, it's like you think you know how to do this, but nah. Here's like the next, like here's the next shit. And like I love that. I I find it invigorating, and it's it it, it gives me more avenues to be creative. It's the engineering of it all, I guess. I'm curious a little bit. You were mentioning the rules and maybe some of them are unspoken. Are there other ways in which that they are communicated or a ways in which you pick up on the on said rules besides just watching the show or observing human behavior? Yes. I mean, sometimes I will go on a show and I will have a, a producing director say, look, uh, I mean, OK, I'll actually give Nancy Drew as an example. Larry Tang, who was the uh, producer director before me, first day I walked on set, he was like, you know, like, we don't like, we, we like, or, or less setups, more takes. Like, let's, let's spend the time on making the performance great. And we have seven main cast, right? So trying to get as many faces in that frame at once and, and you know, clever framing, let that camera move so that, you know, a two shot turns into a single rather than coverage in like three sizes that rather than doing that on each actor, like he had very, like, we don't like overs. We don't like overs unless they mean something, you know, like we like. Wait, tell, tell me what, like, why do they not like We were overs? talking so much about overs lately. It's so funny that you bring Oh, it have up. you? Yeah, That's yeah. interesting. Because I also at the beginning was like, why don't, a lot of directors don't like overs. And I was like, why don't we like overs? <laughs> um, it's because, and I've learned this since, especially after doing a bunch of stuff that, and over is, it's not a standard and shouldn't be treated as a standard. The over should have cinematic grounding. If I'm over someone's shoulder, that reminds me that I'm in a conversation with them, right? Whereas if I'm on a clean shot of someone, I'm in that person's head. I'm, I'm that person experiencing that situation versus that person standing with another person. It's about 
Like, you know, and, and like, you know how sometimes an over can just be like, it's a dirty, like, okay, you get a little bit of head here and shoulder here. That's fine. Maybe you've got more, like you've got more head and more shoulder and the person is just over your shoulder and that person is crazy intimidating. Like it's all, it's, it's, I think the fact, I think the reason a lot of directors are kind of annoyed with overs is because it's a reflection of the nineties version of television, which we had, you're doing your master, you're doing this shot, you're doing this shot, and you're doing over, over, and that's how we cover it. And I think a lot of directors are just annoyed that that's the standard. It's not that the over is bad, it's that the over should have context. Yeah, I, people also talk about close-ups, right? Like I think there was a period of time where a close-up was an even more important piece of coverage in that, like that cutting to a close really meant something, whereas like, mediums and wides were kind of where we were living a little bit more but i think now that we're watching more and more things on smaller and smaller screens i think a close is just part of the vocabulary in a way that it wasn't before i guess i like i don't i i personally like i don't like that i love i love a close-up to mean something like i love that if we're gonna be right there in the frame with someone's face we earned that and we're there for a reason because a close-up can be so powerful right and 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 letting I, I like I love a two shot I love a fucking five shot like I love when I can see all the like I hate like it, just like cutting and, and that's the thing is when you're shooting overs you're shooting coverage what you're doing is you're restricting yourself to cutting you can't just play the whole scene out you have to you have to cut and cutting feels like something and it's and it's about sort of being a little bit nitpicky about the cinematic language and 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 making those choices intentionally not and and if you're making choices because of efficiency then make it a moving camera master make it something cool that that like is that makes you feel like you're in the scene i think a lot of the the whole over thing is just based on a lot of directors especially older directors who worked in the 90s when tv got super popular and they were shooting you know a bajillion episodes a month right and like law and order you have a standard right you have a camera on a steady cam a moving master and then the two overs and they're all they can all shoot at the same time exactly right? like what are you even doing there as a director other than saying action and cut Collecting a paycheck. Yeah. I mean, you're asking for a yeah, coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and asking for Or from what I've heard at the time, like a whiskey. Everyone's always like, ah, oh, back yeah. in the day. <laughs> bumps. Can you think of something worse than like directing with a, like a mild buzz? Just feeling a little slow? Sounds so terrible well, to I me. don't know. We've both directed in Kentucky, Matt, and I think you had a lot more whiskey. I did, but, well, but <laughs> not while we were there. rolling. That's for sure. The worst is I've only ever done it once, and I was in film school, is directing while stoned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't act well stoned. Don't prep well. St well, no. Prep well stoned. Sure, sure. That's That's fine. Uh, homework is different, right? The homework is different. What, we just talked to the DP of End of the Fucking World. Do you know that show? Yes, I love that show. And the way he discussed their rules for covering actors was he called it putting the, the camera inside the dialogue, you know, as opposed to outside the dialogue, which is what made you made me think of when you're talking about, you know, when the camera is between people it's inside the conversation and when it's behind people it's outside of the conversation i think i mean i think that's a much more articulate beautiful way of putting it than i just did but that is exactly it like being clean on a character is it's it's about that character and not not about them talking to that character but sometimes it is about that 
Sometimes it's about them pleading to the other character and you want to be over that character so you feel that person there. It's just about like recognizing what the emotional beats are and then translating that through the camera. But let me ask you, and I know in TV it's a little different because you are shooting so many people so fast, but would you rather have like a three-quarter angle clean shot instead of the over? Or do you, I think part of the reason you shoot these overs is because you can shoot multiple angles at the same time that are maybe facing each other. If you want to do kind of clean frontal singles, it's hard to shoot both actors at the same time, right? Yeah, well, I mean, give me a clean single and a profile on my other one. I love a hard profile. Love a hard profile. There's and you some... don't mind cutting between those two? Oh, it looks beautiful. It, oh, it's totally fine. Like, I mean, you don't have to necessarily be front on to shoot someone clean. You can just be over the shoulder of that person, keep them like separated enough. There's always two directions you can shoot from. And sometimes it's like, I mean... Sorry, I was I was incorrect. I'm not going to shoot the profile of the other actor. I'm going to shoot the profile of that actor, and then their clean three-quarter, and then the profile of the other actor, and that three-quarter on that other side. And then I can cut so those. So you can light them separately. I light them separately, and then I can cut them back and forth whatever way I would like to. Yeah, I, I like that also because then you're not... Whenever you, I would try to do like overs as crosses, you're always in that zone where you're you're fighting the other camera. Right, like you don't want to accidentally be, like y you have to compromise both shots that way. Basically, if you're if you're in crosses rather than st stacked on one side or the other. Yeah, I guess I'm like I've kind of like in my own brain gotten into a system now where you know if I'm shooting the face of one actor, you know, a camera's doing that. One thing I love, especially I'm, if I'm in if I'm in tight mode, if I'm like right in there in that person's face, then I put like a 135 on my B camera, and we're getting your hands ringing, we're getting you like brushing your hair away, we're getting a fucking book on the shelf, or you know, like there's there's sniping off pieces, sniping yeah, yeah. off pieces, but pieces that are, um, it's the space between the words, the space between the notes, which is just as if not, which is just as important as the words. Sometimes more important than the words. <laughs> On that note, you have done a lot of shows that are CW shows, right? Or done a couple, kind of in, yeah. that, in that genre. The young, the youth. The, yeah, kind of YA. Like so, sexy vampire, sexy, you know, scary uh, mermaids, that sort of stuff, right? Like it, a lot of genre stuff, like, like cool genre stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so how much is the network involved in like how you shoot the show? Because like they're all shot beautifully and it's all very, very nice, but they're... There is kind of a little bit of like a CW look sometimes. And also the casting. I mean, the cast is just like absurdly good looking. Absurdly beautiful. Yes. Every single time. Can you cast some ugly people for me? Please? We try. Trust me. I try. We, we try. <laughs> so does someone like the CW, when you know it's a CW show, are you shooting it differently than if you were to shoot, for instance, a nightmare sequence for Minority Report? You know. Of course, it's it's definitely, it's always different. Like I said, every show gives me different requirements. You know, certain shows want three sizes of coverage on every single character, a single on every single character. But that's actually the thing is that like the shows that require me to do, you know, tons and tons of coverage, everything in between, I can do whatever I want. You know, like how I shoot my master, how I, how I you know, how I do all of my scenes like that. Like I can do anything I want. As long as I get those three sizes, which is obviously limiting because time is a thing. Um, but then there are shows that, you know, have specific rules and are like really cool. Like 
you know, I mean, Doom Patrol is not YA, but, you know, they have like a way they shoot their show that like specific roles on, on, you know, how they do it. And I try to watch as many episodes as I can going into a series so that I just sort of ingest what their language is and like try to do that. But then like I inevitably, I can't help it. I'm still Amanda. So I'm still going to tell that story the way that I saw it in my head. And how do you do you use any cool tools to plan out your blocking to plan out your shots? Like do you if you are doing a cool moving camera master, do you diagram it? Do you use Shot Designer Pro? Do you have to show it to the showrunner before? Uh, I definitely never have to show anybody my shot. Like what? Like if I have a complicated blocking and camera move, like I'll talk to my DP about it. Maybe if it's particularly complicated and needs more equipment and if we're lighting more areas than that we were, than we were anticipating. But if we're working within the equipment that we're used to working in, then I can kind of just come on and say, this is what we're doing. Uh, I personally, I do sort of top down shot maps overhead, very, very rough. I just write them on a piece of paper once. So that's in my brain. Um, and then my process is, uh, the night before I shoot, I go to sleep and then I think about the scene over and over and over again in my head. And I think about where a camera is going to go after my first setup and where B camera is going to go after my first setup and how I can maybe marry those into like the same setups. I mean, it's kind of, uh, it is kind of algebraic to, to me. Like it is, it is kind of like the, the factors and the variables, like the, the variables being, what I want, like where I want the camera to go and the factors being the story. And I, I don't know, I just, I, I come up with that depending scene, some scenes, it's the night before other scenes, it's weeks before because it's more complicated, but. And so for your strategy, you've been to the location, right? You know, if it's on a stage. Yeah, I was going to say, you've, you've had like a tech scout with people as well. So it's, it, you know, you've been able to kind of walk through with say the DP and say like, well, what if blocking looked something like this? You know, you talk through the gear with them, you right, know, a cool direction or we want the window behind her or something right. here. Right. How, what's your strategy for like, setting up a blocking with seven people on a scene like Nancy Drew. I mean, it is like, it is, it's, it's algebra, but it's like visual algebra. And I like, it's honestly like, it's my favorite thing. Like I love like, okay, say we've got two people, we've got a 50, 50 shot two profile, like profile 50, 50 shot. And then character B turns towards camera. Cause he's got a thought walks towards camera. That becomes his single with the other guy over his shoulder, then he turns around and it becomes that guy's over. And then he walks past him and then turns around because it becomes his over. Like, I love that shit. I think, I think there is an elegance to efficiency. I think there is something about making, making the camera move around with the blocking of the actors that ultimately makes your edit more fluid so that when you do cut, the audience doesn't notice unless they're supposed to, at which case maybe you jump the line or maybe you like jump cut or get to like a much tighter shot. Like I prefer that you don't notice the cut until I want you to. And that's what for me, the the most beautiful thing that television has taught me is getting something done in a short amount of time will often if you're smart about it, will give you the most fluid, beautiful shots. And do you, so when you, you're kind of creating these beautiful frames and compositions in your mind, you're diagramming them. Are you also thinking of the motivation for like why this actor is walking in that direction, why this actor, and then do you have to tell like 
the actors that like oh maybe you think like you don't want to face him anymore so you're gonna walk to the Absolutely. counter and just like, i mean like actors don't want to feel like meat puppets right they, and 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 also like if you give them something that feels false like that fish yes like that fish which was a literal meat puppet but you don't want to give them a direction that feels false because everything will feel false. The more context you can give the actor, the more reason you can give the actor to live in the moment and not remember where their mark is and feel like they need to go to that mark, it feels better every time. And if you're, do and if you're doing something that makes the actor feel like they shouldn't be going there, then you need to rethink what you're doing. It's telling to me that even when you were kind of walking us through this hypothetical you said like, oh, the character has a thought which motivates their their next mark, basically, right? So like thinking through the motivation that compels a character to do these things, I think is maybe the thing that's easy to forget when you're just trying to build cool shots. And it's the difference between making something that makes sense and also that so that the actors trust you, right? Like you don't want them to lose confidence in you either. That's, yeah, that's so, so majorly important. Ultimately, the characters are what matters. It like the story can be cool. You can have a great plot, but if we don't care about whether or not our protagonist survives, then like screw your great plot. It doesn't matter. Like we need to care about what they're going through and they need to feel real. And like honestly, like you when you say something like, you know, a beautiful shot, yes. You can have a beautiful like, you know, the light is beautiful and the composition is great. Sure, that's a beautiful shot. A more beautiful shot could be one actor against a white wall giving you like the most amazing performance ever. And then that is a beautiful shot. The actor, the acting is so, so important. The visual is something that we as directors do to like enhance that and make that amazing and really bring it home. But if that doesn't work, then none of it works. In my opinion, I've been thinking a lot and we've been talking, been talking about it a lot on the podcast of what makes a cinematic show cinematic versus like a YouTube sketch YouTube. You know, we talked uh, to someone about that recently. And I do think one of the things is like when, when you see like a film school short or you see like an amazingly shot YouTube video that's shot on Alexa and lit with like an 18K and, you know, everything's perfect. But you're noticing that the characters are blocking themselves in a way to create this beautifully composed shot, but you don't quite know why they're blocking themselves like that. You know, that's to me when all of a sudden a show doesn't feel cinematic. Because I, I was watching, somebody sent us some trailer to their indie film, you know, and it was shot really nice on anamorphic lenses and everything. And then I was watching The Boys, the, the show on Amazon Prime, which I love. And like, why is this shot of the boys of like a close up of a person? Why does this feel like so much better to me than a close up on this shot when they're using similar lenses, similar framing, similar everything? And I and I think it's what you're saying. It's like the performance in the story is like I'm, I'm with the character and I believe that they're here, you know. And yes, the art direction is great and the lighting is great. But the art direction and the lighting is pretty great in this indie film, too. But there's something that feels cheap to me and yeah I think it's, it's about that. the the editor and the director making the decision that you should be looking at this shot right now versus everything else we shot 
Right now, you need to be with this character. You need to hear what this character is saying. You need to see their face or their hands or whatever, you know? Like, it's about navigating that moment emotionally and then using this visual language that we're all so fluent in to make it better. Yeah, and it's why a $50 short film can get you a TV career because you're focusing on something that resonates with people as opposed to just, like, a beautifully composed frame. With the, but I mean, awesome isn't that camera. like for me, at least for me as a filmmaker, like my goal is to, you know, reach other people and, and, and touch other people. And it is the most like, I can't tell you how cool it was. Like the first show I worked on Shadowhunters had like this insane fan base, like insane fan base. Like I have like, I have fans. I have like six of them. I have like literally like six real fans and they, you know, watched my scenes and, and, you know, like, like I had one girl send me an essay about like theory about the color in my shots, which was like, what the hell? Like nobody cares about TV directors. This She's is like, insane. Oh, you're, you're right. <laughs> I am smart. Good call. Yeah. But it's, but, but what it is ultimately is like, you're, you're telling a story. You're, you're, you're telling a human experience. You're telling, I mean, most of the time, I mean, not all movies, obviously, but like sometimes a vampire experience, sometimes right? an animal, I don't know, whatever. But like, for the most part, we're trying to share human experiences. And that is that is the end all be all of it. Like you can like I, I mean, my entire family are artists. I'm very I'm classically trained in terms of like the visual. Like I love the rule of thirds. I love all that stuff. I love I love color palettes, color balance, all that kind of stuff. But in the end, it's it is really about the story you're telling and and using our cinematic language to take that script, those words, and turn them visual. Yeah, I, I, I do think, though, most directors, even new ones right out of film school and everyone, and I mean, Matt and I work a lot in advertising, and it's like every creative director is like, it's all about the story. It's all about, like, you know, like everyone knows that it's supposed to be about that, but then you see these kind of newer filmmakers and they're just so excited by the toys and by the magic hour and by this and by that, that they get so distracted that they it's it's just really hard to keep focus. I think on that's that fair. Thing. I think I think it's, it's it's fair to get excited about all the tools and stuff. And like, I'll tell you, like, even like the, the fact that you say, like, everyone says it's about the story, like, you're right. Like, literally everybody's like, it's about the characters, about the story. But if everybody really understood that, then every single TV show would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't mean that in a disparaging way. Like, I I meant that there's people like you that can get past the other distractions, you know, to actually do that. And it's, and that's, it's well, hard. I mean, I think, I think, I think a lot it of it well. for me, at least is like, I was like, I'm a, I was a huge, like, I'm a nerd, you know, like I love Star Trek. I love Harry Potter. I play video games. Yeah, she is talking to us on a gaming I, headset right now. For, <laughs> yeah. For like I'm, I like, I'm, I'm, I'm the reason I'm a storyteller is because I'm a story consumer and I'm just trying to make cool stories for other people that can like enjoy them as much as I enjoy the stories that I'm told, you know? I'm just trying to like build in that universe, I guess. Yeah, play in that sandbox. And what's great about that also is that you can you still get to appreciate and enjoy all of the the fandoms that you're a part of still. Do you know what I mean? I think it's easy for people to think like, oh, well now like this big TV director, they don't have time to like love the things they used to love. No, I think people love them even more, right? You know how hard it is to make the things that you love then. 
you know like the admiration only grows and like that relationship only deepens i feel like over time right and you want to pass it on you want what you experienced when you watched whatever back to the future you want them to experience when they're watching shadow hunters, yeah that's right? that's like, that's I mean, like that's the whole reason i do it and then and honestly like i kind of i definitely fell ass backwards into the ya universe it was never my goal i was never like i want to be a ya director but you love genre from a young age. i've always loved genre i still always love genre like and ya is genre it's like genre with very good looking teens you, yeah. you keep saying you're you're lucky and i i think that luck is a thing that we talk about on the show sometimes i think you did all of the things to set yourself up to be ready for the opportunity that arose but the thing that is interesting is that I feel like your career has the the true luck is that YA and genre kind of coincided as you were coming up do you know what I mean like so there there was opportunity to do what you love to do the most at the time that you were ready to do it is pretty incredible for sure but like YA YA wasn't vampires and mermaids and and like or or superheroes you know what i mean like the arrowverse wasn't a thing not that long ago i was i remember being at comic-con the year that twilight was there and it was like a a distinct shift in terms of what fandom felt like and people were mad about it that movie blew people's minds because no one was like oh you can't make a girl-led right, teen yeah, exactly. story and put and in the movie theater. Like, and then it was like the number one movie for like five weeks. I saw that movie three times and I still can't tell you what happened. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. But but in terms of like a cultural shift, right? Where like it used to be that like Comic-Con was for dudes and like people who care about superheroes or whatever. And that was like the beginning of opening it up to a wider audience that's a that's actually an interesting point like i wonder if part of the like the ya nerd verse has come into such power is because like women were kind of welcomed into it or like girls were kind of welcomed into it like buffy is like a big sure. one buffy was yeah huge. buffy's probably that that's probably the yeah um, buffy was kind of like an outlier i think yeah at the time and and buffy appealed I, you know, who it's like a Joss Whedon show, right? I think it, I don't think people think of Buffy as a YA show, right? Like traditionally, just because. But it is, the, it is literally the foundation of every YA show that exists now. Every YA show is like, you know, like Buffy. Right, right. <laughs> but I think the, the money that controls like all of Hollywood and what gets made is when they saw that Twilight can get young you know, it, like very young, like young teenagers to go spend money and female teenagers to go spend money. And it doesn't have to be a horror movie like or a date night thing or like a superhero thing, but it can actually be a story that's meaningful to like a, a different audience than you've ever accessed. I think people were like, oh, wow, this is like we should we should stop ignoring these kids that are talking about their favorite books. Right. I mean, Harry Potter, like there's there's a, a giant um, list of books that change things but I think Twilight is when people realize that you know like you said you saw it three times you don't quite know it D- doesn't have to be an Oscar caliber movie to actually have like a huge impact on society if you're talking to these underserved this underserved audience right I would argue that Harry Potter did it because like when Twilight came out um Twilight was like I mean Harry Potter was like a huge I remember when that first movie came out and like 
I skipped school for the first time. It was like very, like, you know, like it was, I wore a costume. It was like very, very exciting. Like I had never cared about anything that much before in my life. But that was, you were at an age where your parents had to take you to see the movie. Right? No, I was not that. I'm, I was 16, 15. I saw it by myself. Really? When the, when the Chris Columbus one? Yeah, I was in high school. I was in grade nine. But I mean, I would, I mean, I would just argue that like, I think Harry Potter was like, the beginning of it and then twilight was the like confirmation that like oh shit this is like a real thing i think that ya is at least the shows that i work on uh have tried to and are conscious of the people we're speaking to not all of them but most of them and i think that now at least a lot of the television that i'm making is influenced so heavily by the people watching it because they have Twitter, they have voices, and they can say that, we don't like this, we like this, you should be showing us this. And you're actually, because of the internet, seeing what you're watching changing because of what the audience feels. Right, and you're also learning that those shows are appealing. And I think, to me, why Twilight is different than Harry Potter is because Harry Potter is like, you took your kid, like kids, it's a kids go to see it. But Twilight is about people that are making their own decisions and spending their own Are you a Twilight fan? Money. I'm getting this like, vibe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think the point is, is that like, there's a lot of cultural things that all sort of shifted together to all of a sudden mean that there was a lot of genre YA TV happening when you had the exact right resume for it. Right. But also, like Amanda is saying, we also realize that like YA isn't just 16 year old girls. It's like actually 45 year old women and it's, you know, 25 year old men. And it's like just so appeals to so many more people than we was traditionally thought of. Yeah. And I mean, it's 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 interesting because like if you look. So when I was in school, for example, like there is literary fiction versus genre. And literary fiction is always sort of, sort of regarded as, like, the fancier, the more highbrow. Genre is always kind of, like, lowerbrow, pulpy. Whereas I've always been of the opinion that if genre requires metaphor, world-building, layers, context, like, social relevance, genre is so much more, like layered and intelligent, I think, than just basic literary fiction. You could take any, and that's the thing, is like any basic literary fiction story can be turned into a much more complex genre story. And and I think- Jane Austen and zombies. Yeah, I I just think like maybe the world is recognizing, I think that genre is making a big, big comeback right now because there's just so much more to it, you know? Like- and if you have the, the, the it's, it's, it's a combination because like I was saying earlier, like you still need those basic human emotions. You need that story. You need that reality, that truth for it all to be grounded in. And then when you add all of these like fantastical elements that can help you relate it all to your situation in a way that's more palatable because you can picture your depression as a dragon or you can picture your abusive husband as a zombie it just makes it it's like a spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down awesome well i have one last question i know we're kind of running out of time but uh so now that you've been doing this for so when edward (laughs) said to yes so team jacob Um, I did, I have done a lot of Twilight related work. I'm not going to lie. That's uh, awesome. I but, love that. Uh, what, so now that you've basically your entire career has been doing cool genre TV shows, 
if and that you started in 2011, right? Like nine years ago, a different, a slightly different time than it is now. What do you see in TV now, and especially now being also a producer on TV and not just a director? What do you see as like if if I'm a, a young listener listening to this show, I'm finishing up film school and I want to be a TV director and work in genre and do these things. What do you think are important stepping stones or, or do you have any advice to people that want basically to kind of come up in a similar way that you did, but by 2020 standards? Yeah. Make everything. Don't think your first film is going to be your opus. Like your first film is probably going to be shit. Like, just make stuff, make mistakes, make bad things, because every mistake is a brand new lesson that you've learned that you're never going to do again. And filmmaking is so much about doing and you don't need equipment. Please do not invest in that fancy camera. Do not invest in those fancy lenses. Do it on your iPhone. Like I said, somebody against a wall giving you a great monologue can be a great film literally one shot wait but you don't but but if you could have like a cool hallway or a window or something sure. do that yeah you know it. obviously like put all of your thought into everything but embrace your limitations that is my that is my like i wish i could have that on a t-shirt embrace your limitations they are a part of your color <laughs> have you palette. heard of tea public you, you can have just shoot it on I'll a get baseball one and I will wear it. Like. <laughs> we should get we should make an embrace your limitations t-shirt. That good. We Straight up embrace your limitations though. The the best thing you can possibly do as a filmmaker is look at the limitations you have and use them as a color on your palette. Oh, your your mom has like a really cool living room and you have your one act, your one friend who like can play an angry guy really well. Write something to it. Shoot it. See what happens. Just use the tools you have. Do it all the time. Don't expect anything from it. Just work on yourself as a filmmaker because chances are, if you keep doing it, I mean, not chances are, this is again, I'm talking about algebra. I'm talking about math. If you make enough mistakes, you will be good and you will be so good that even if you don't make an award-winning film, even if you don't become mega famous, you will have the skills and you will have the proof that people will hire you. And do you think you should show people all these things that are mistakes? or is No. Oh, really? No. Be very selective about that. I have, like I said, I, like before Mitten, I have like probably hundreds of films. And I could recognize when I'm like, that is not good. We're going to keep that one. Let me ask, how did you recognize? How could you tell? Especially when you're younger, because it's like, ah, I really worked hard on this one. I really liked the idea. And I know the microphone wasn't really working the way it should have, but... Oh, well, first of all, actually, this is a very important uh, piece of advice. Like I said, if you have a piece of... If you have, like, someone standing against a wall and you shoot it on a high 8 tape and, like, the lighting is terrible, if your sound is bad, then you're done. Sound is, like, really, really important. Get good sound. Learn how to do good sound. That is... That is the first thing that will take you out of anything. A bad shot won't necessarily. Um, but how to recognize whether or not it's good, I don't know. Like, sometimes you just you just know. And it's, just, and it's also about not, you have to let go of your ego. It has to not be about you being a great filmmaker, like born and raised. It has to be about you being a great filmmaker because you've taught yourself to be that person. You know, it's it's a craft. Well, Amanda, we could talk to you for days and days, but we should let you go because we, you are prepping a, a big TV show soon. Before we let you go, though, can you hang out and endorse with us? Yes. Unpaid endorsements. So my unpaid endorsement 
is uh, the Instagram of uh, a fellow producing director, um, Nicole Castle, who did, she was the producing director on Watchmen. And she recently posted uh, a bunch of different slides from the pitch deck slash lookbook that helped her get the, the that season of Watchmen. I am going to be And jealous. it is great. What is, how do you spell her last name? Because she is definitely not the Nicole Castle that I just looked up on Instagram. K-A-S-S-E-L-L. It's, it's super cool. She, you know, like it's got visual references it's got all of the writing that she did on like figuring out how to make the show look and feel the way it does um and she's been posting them kind of slowly over the last couple weeks on instagram but i think she's done now um and they're all up there on her instagram nicole castle is her name if you search for her on instagram my thing recently has been uh i haven't really been able to sleep uh i've had uh, you know anxiety pandemic all that kind of stuff I have I have two recommendations under the same guise of things that will help you sleep. Okay, so it's all on YouTube. Uh, Jeff Bridges has sleep tapes where he's literally <laughs> like walking around his farm and he's like, "There's a bird out here. It's a nice bird." Yeah, man. Like, and he's got that deep, gravelly voice, yeah. and like he'll be yeah, like, yeah. "You know what?" And he doesn't realize they're sleep tapes. Oh, yeah. probably not. <laughs> He, they're probably just like yeah just messages he recorded on his on his like phone or whatever but like he's just like you know what there's people out there that love you don't worry about it if you're thinking about that don't worry like it's just so soothing and amazing and an amazing thing to fall asleep to and then the second thing on youtube as well wait so are you watching it or you're just it's just to they're it? all they're just sleep tapes and there's 10 of them there's okay. 10 hours of jeff bridges just rambling on <laughs> on his property in california and and it's the real jeff bridges it's it's not like an impression. It is actually Jeff Bridges. It's not Josh. That's Josh just, Rubin. Like it's not Morgan <laughs> Freeman. Just go on Jeff YouTube, Bridges. Jeff Bridges sleep tapes. Oh my God. And you will wait. have so the excited. best sleep of your life. And then the second one I have, if you are a fan of Star Trek, uh, there is a 24 hour loop of just the engine hum. I uh, My life is currently changed because of these two extraordinary sleep aids. And I would like to give them unto the world. Well, those are great endorsements from both of you. Might as well give up now. I was going to endorse the weirdest thing of all time, which is, so I've always had this like weird thing when I wear glasses, my skin gets really dry on my face. And recently, because we're all wearing masks all the time, and especially when you're on set wearing a mask for like 14 hours or whatever, um, just my face just like gets really, really super dry. And I've tried like, I, I know nothing about skincare really. And I've tried all these lotions that you can buy everywhere. And then I just saw this commercial for CeraVe Moisture Cream. And, I, and it, everyone was like, I read, started reading and doing all this research and doing a bunch of, you know, reading a bunch of reviews. And then I bought this stuff. And it's like the only thing that works for me after I'm wearing a mask. And uh, now my wife uses it also. And it's, um, it's like if you're having a crazy dry face from wearing a mask all day on set, uh, check out the CeraVe Moisture Cream. It's like changed my life. I literally was like having like f skin flaking off my face, and this is the only man, thing guys. Is, these are unendorsed, you but you should get them endorsed. That was a great advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, uh, Amanda, where can listeners learn more about you? How can they keep track of what you're doing, what you're making? Well, I'll be completely honest. I'm not really an internet present person. I do have an Instagram. I, I if you want to look at my 35 millimeter photographs, because I'm a nine, like a 90 year old man, uh, you can look at my Instagram arrow dot photos. Um, 
other than that, I urge you to arrow dot photos. Arrow dot like, photos. Like the like a like a bow and arrow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Arrow dot photos is my Instagram. And what about hello hello Amanda Rowe? Is that? I mean not that that's gonna be my new podcast, guys. You'll be my first guest. There you go. <laughs> There we go. It's a and crossover episode right If now. people want to watch your Nancy Drews, are you, you're in Nancy's Co-EP Drew. on all Nancy's of Drew, the second sorry. season? All the second oh, season. I, I directed two episodes the first season. Please, oh, go to the CW app. Season one is free. Uh, I urge you, if you're a filmmaker, uh, you want to get into television, Larry Tang, who like set the tone for that series, talk about not shooting coverage. It's actually very interesting, and it stands out. And we embrace the supernatural, the horror of it all. I'm very proud to be on this show, and I think it's a little underrated. And it would be awesome if some of you guys checked it out. <laughs> and you're saying watching the show is a great lesson in not shooting over too it's much It's a coverage. great lesson in how to shoot seven people with one I mean, setup. I will watch it. Awesome. Well, we will have all of the things that we uh, talked about uh, on the show in our show notes at justshootitpod.com. And you can learn more about and be reminded of all of our great new episodes coming out across all social media at Just Shoot It Pod. And I am at Mr. Matt Amo. And I'm at O. Kaplan on Instagram, um, at Smitey Pileg on Twitter. And if you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 1262-SHOOT-1. And uh, this episode is edited by Sarah Weirda. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. Our social media guy is Derek Aiello. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Amanda. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.